Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Leaders Performance Podcast. My name is John Porch. I'm the editor at the Leaders Performance Institute, and I hope you're all well. It's certainly been a while since you've appeared on your podcast feed. For today's episode, the focus is coaching and development, which was an area of intense focus for the Leaders Performance Institute throughout the first part of the year, whether that be through our communities of practice, leaders' virtual roundtables, or our written content. Before I go on, I just wanted to mention our main partners, Kaiser, who make these podcasts possible. Kaiser have been changing the world of fitness for over 40 years, and we're proud to have partnered with them for a full decade now. More than 80% of the top sports teams in the world now train with Kaiser exercise equipment. If you would like to talk to them, please get in touch with a member of the leaders team, who will be happy to introduce you to the right person at Kaiser. Alternatively, head to kaiser.com to find out more. Back to today's episode, where we bring you three interviews with three practitioners whose day-to-day work is steeped in coaching and development. Firstly, Ed Vahid, the Academy Manager at English Premier League Southampton, who is followed by Lucy Skilbeck, the Director of Actor Training at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, or RADA. And finally, Scott Draw, the Director of Sport at Millfield School in Somerset, right here in the UK. That's the running order, and so we start with Ed Vahid from Southampton Football Club, who have long been renowned for talent development in English football. Ed wrote a guest piece for the Leaders Performance Institute in March titled Identifying Athlete Potential, Using Your Development Programs to Reduce the Inevitable Uncertainty. In this piece, he explains how the club interrogate their academy decision-making processes in an ongoing effort to decide what is important when considering potential. As you can probably guess, these are the sorts of topics that crop up time and again across our performance network. If you'd like to find out more about our communities of practice, Leaders Virtual Roundtables, as well as our events and networking opportunities, then please head to leadersinsport.com forward slash performance. So anyway, Ed at Southampton. His piece went down very well with visitors to our performance hub, and so I wanted to invite Ed back onto the show to discuss some of the themes raised in his piece. I began by asking him what inspired him to write the piece in the first place. I guess it was several things. So first and foremost, being able to identify and develop potential is is ultimately essential to an effective academy programme. It's a topic that I think naturally consumes your thinking and is at the centre of so many conversations in in this environment. And whilst naturally there's always going to be uncertainty when you talk about potential, if we can improve our ability to identify and develop potential, ultimately we'll have a better chance of achieving our academy vision, which is, is clearly to see players progressing through the pathway and into the first team. And, and then I, I guess a final thought on, on what inspired us to write the piece. On a personal level, I've really benefited from committing my thoughts to paper and the process of reflecting and and writing has helped me to make better sense of our current audit process, the various conversations I've had, the the books I've read, the podcasts I've listened to. So I think there's both a a professional and a a personal impact of engaging in, in the writing. It's great to hear that it's had both that professional and personal impact. Why do you feel that the topic of talent identification and development is so important? And how does your experience at Southampton feed into that? I think every player will have a different story. Um, and our ability to recognise what's going to contribute to their success is a really exciting challenge and it's a really fundamental part of our, our work within the academy. And, and because every player's story is so individualised, it will always be a challenge. It's going to be a challenge that, that will always exist. So 
we ultimately want to improve our ability to both identify and develop potential and specifically focusing on that identification piece. Well, probably there's two elements. One is what content is, is most relevant when, when you're discussing potential. And secondly, what does the environment need to look like or the conditions that allow us to have really effective conversations about a player's potential? And, and ideally, the environment allows people to sort of openly express their, their thoughts, their opinions, and, and perhaps if, if they've got a certain level of self-awareness, disclose any biases that they might have. What are some of the challenges that emerge during the course of a season? as you implement this process? I think as I touched on it, every single player is is so different. They will have a unique story. They'll have a unique background. I think even over the sort of the past 12 months, we've had a greater insight into to what goes on for our players outside of the training ground, outside of the match day. We've had a almost the most vivid window into to home life for them. So it really is quite challenging trying to process all of those elements, recognising they're going to contribute to different individuals in different ways and and potential is going to manifest itself in different ways and almost being mindful that every player has a certain degree of potential. We want to identify what are the key things that are going to define those that that progress and perhaps those that don't progress quite so far. Equally, how does that ultimately impact our our development programmes as well? You mentioned some of the reading or listening in the case of podcasts that you've done around these topics. And there were a number of authors and works that you cited in the piece. Could you perhaps share some thoughts on whose work and reflections have helped to build and refine your understanding of this particular topic? Or is there anyone else that informed your thinking? I think whilst there's the sort of the the reading of of books and the the listening to, to podcasts, I think there's another element around sort of the conversations that almost occur on a daily basis. So in, internally, that might be with Matt, our academy director, who's also clearly very committed to, to the process of understanding and developing potential. It might be with our coaching team. It, it might be with Ben, who leads on our data insights content. It, equally, conversations with, with staff and colleagues external to, to this environment. So the, the leaders network is, is clearly really important in, in that regard and connects you with some fantastic people and, and some really insightful people. And as an example, the likes of Mo Bobat and David Court at the ECB do some outstanding work in, in this space and are always really generous for their time. And Nigel Redmond for me is always a really strong sounding board for sort of advice and, and guidance on, on topics such as this. And then you touched on on the books and the articles. I think I've really enjoyed learning more about decision-making processes and the work of the likes of Daniel Kahneman around biases or Annie Duke, who I believe was a a former poker player, talking about some of her decision-making strategies. And I just think that there's so much literature out there around decision-making and forecasting. It's, It's trying to engage with that appropriately and often engaging with stuff that sits outside of football, I think, can sometimes help challenge some of our internal processes as well as continuing to have lots of conversations with football staff at this club and, and at other clubs. Well it's very kind of you to mention the leaders network there and when you're in those conversations what are the sort of questions you like to pose? What are you ultimately trying to find out? Going back to what we sort of previously said in this conversation I think around our internal audit processes there's two elements that are really intriguing. What's the content that gives you the best insight to a, a player's potential? So what is the, the most relevant input? We'll go into a player audit and there'll be lots of content, but what's the essential stuff? So it's really interesting to ask those individuals, what's the key stuff they look at? What's the stuff that really does inform their decisions? 
and, and then the secondary piece is how do they set up a an environment or create the conditions where they're having really strong conversations that they're having conversations that everyone's contributing to they're reducing the impact of things such as groupthink and they're getting people to disclose their biases what, what are the things that really make those conversations work effectively and who's in the room so yeah so to summarize it's those two elements like what, what's the content and then how do you create the conditions that allow you to make really effective decisions in your experience at Southampton where does the balance sit or where should it sit between objective metrics and more subjective elements when it comes to assessing potential? I think importantly that there has to be a balance and I'd be reluctant to say it's 50-50. I think going back to, to what I said about the individual nature of, of every player, trying to sort of work out the objective and subjective content for each player is a challenge in itself. I think the objective data is important. So that's, that's a really helpful piece of, of the puzzle but it doesn't exist without the context, the subjective view of a coach or a psychologist or a member of our player care team can offer. So I think you have, you absolutely have to have the balance and, and the blend of the two. Finally, Ed, if I were to ask you to gaze into a crystal ball and predict how this space is evolving, both here in England, but also in other leagues, sports and the wider performance space, how do you see things going in the next couple of years? I think, as, you, as you've touched on, John, the use of data and almost objective metrics, I think that that's going to continue to evolve. And from a talent development perspective, in, intrigued as to how um, that data might project future possibilities. So how do we translate the data that's being generated now to forecast what a player's pathway might be in the future? So I think data is a really interesting one. I think the continued development of, of specialist knowledge and insights will improve the process. So if, if we've got coaches and staff working with 12, 13, 14, 15 year olds, developing a really specialist knowledge of, of what you can expect from a, a physical perspective, a psychological perspective, and really understanding child development, I think that's a, a critical piece of the puzzle here. I think there's a continued work around what are the conditions for an optimal meeting to talk about player potential and how do we avoid people or how, how do we encourage people to challenge one another to you know, really um, encourage depth to our, our conversations and really informed decision making. And, and then I think linked to all of those elements is how can we more effectively learn from our decisions? I think one of the things that we've done reasonably well over the past few years is is captured the content that has contributed to our decisions and now that's allowing us to go back to identify what have been the key indicators of potential what have been <clears throat> sort of the key characteristics that individuals need to progress in our pathway and how are they starting to really be prominent in our, our player audit and, and conversations around player potential thank you ed and now on to Lucy Skilbeck, the Director of Actor Training at RADA. The interview you are about to hear is an excerpt from a webinar leaders ran with Kaiser in March, and it was titled The Effectiveness of Performance Pathways for Nurturing Young Talent. Lucy was joined that day by John Alder, the Head of Performance Pathways at UK Sports and the English Institute of Sports. I lifted this clip of Lucy speaking about her roles and responsibilities when it comes to RADA's curriculum and pedagogy. She says that RADA's is a practice-based approach to assimilation, building and practicing skills where teachers see themselves as facilitators rather than gurus. Posing the questions that day was our moderator Simon Jones, who begins here by asking Lucy about her role. 
I'm the director of actor training at RADA. What that means in short is having responsibility for the training and preparation of the acting students. We have, we take 28 students a year. We have, it's a, it's a degree program. So we have, it's a three year course. Students come out with a BA and I'm responsible for the curriculum and the pedagogy and the progression of their training from when they come into the academy as first years to when they graduate into the profession, as many of them do, or when they make the choice at the end of their training to move into other professions, which some of them do as well. So Lucy, I mean, I'm quite curious what what a sort of day-to-day might look like in RADA for one of those performers. Yeah, we take them on a kind of a progressive journey. To begin with, it's an intense training. They're normally doing between 40 to 50 contact hours a week with us. So they're in training pretty much the whole time. They do a range of subjects focusing on movement, voice, acting skills, and then uh, singing and kind of attendant um, skills that that grow from those foundational skills. They do a mixture. It kind of depends where they are in their training. But to begin with, we're really focusing on developing their instrument. And we think of their body, their voice and their imagination and emotional facility as their instrument. And so the the work to begin with is foundational. It's about really kind of expanding and growing through movement, voice and acting classes in particular, really growing that capacity that they have the talent for, growing that and expanding their potential from whichever point they arrive in the academy with. Unlike sports, they haven't necessarily been on a a kind of a structured training program from a younger age. Unlike music, for instance, or dance, likewise, where there has to be a structure from quite a young age, with actors, there doesn't have to be. So they do come to us from quite different, uh, different levels of experience and different perspectives, different backgrounds. And wherever they come, we, we kind of begin that attention to expanding their their capacity in their kind of tuning that instrument. And then as they go through the training, the work becomes more practice oriented. So they take the skills that they're learning and they begin to integrate that into project based work. And then that's largely what the work of the second year is, where it's it's about we begin with exploration, then move in the second year into assimilation. So they're assimilating those skills into practical project based kind of rehearsal exercises, primarily using classical text in the second year. And then in the third year, they're really in a what we'd call an authentic assessment model where they are in a normal year, everything's different this year, but in a normal year, the majority of their work would be within a production capacity. So they would be going through a series of stage productions, film and radio productions as actors working with professional directors and and designers and other creatives. So they have the experience of practicing their craft before they then go out into the, they move through the training over the course of those three years, building their skills, assimilating their skills and then practicing their skills in their third year. Thanks, Lucy. And certainly, you know, it's a strange time with, uh, uh, with the, you know, the pandemic and all of the challenges that are, that's thrown at us all. What, what do, how do you see the way in which you're changing the way you see talent and the way it's developed? I think it's changed a lot. I think, I think it's been changing over the years. And I think we have to remain really responsive to the changes that are happening 
in the world itself. I think obviously, as you say, COVID has really accelerated a lot of change that was coming anyway. I think the Black Lives Matter movement has really accelerated a lot of change and has caused a lot of really necessary reflection and introspection on behalf of institutions of every complexion all around the world. But I would absolutely say we're, we're in that process of reflection and introspection and change ourselves as a result. I think young people, and I hate to generalise really, but there does seem to be a shift in the expectations and the experiences of young people. They have a very strong sense of their identity. They have a very strong sense of their individuality, their position in the world. The politics have shifted from, from when I was kind of a, a student and a student activist and, and my politics were not so much about my individual identity. And I think we really have to nurture the individual within their training. We have to see them, we have to recognize them, we have to appreciate where they've come from, and we have to be more bespoke in how we work with them. And that's what we're working on as an institution at the moment. And I think one of the things that really has been revealed to us over the last 12 months is that we haven't done that enough. And we need to be developing a much more kind of facilitated or facilitative relationship with the student. So we are following the student as well as guiding them. That makes sense. We are allowing them yeah. to be their, their full, true selves. And we're following them as they develop, as well as trying to guide them in their development. I think in certainly in, in um, actor training, the cliche or the myth or the reality, perhaps, is that teachers can become gurus and can set a course that a student has to follow. And I think there's a real shift that's happening now saying, what is the teacher's role? What understandings do teachers need to have in order to be really responsive to the individual circumstances of the young people that we're working with? I think there's a different sense of responsibility and a different sense of duty of care that's accelerated over this last 12 months. Lucy, I know you've got this lovely expression about redefining the pedagogical relationships with the, with the athletes, with the performers. How are you thinking about how coaches and teachers should change the way they work and, and nurture talent in the future? I think we're really looking at how we reframe that relationship. Yeah, really kind of undoing some of the practice that, that has been habitual for quite a long time. And I think one of the things that we're looking at quite actively is how we develop a more facilitative relationship with the student and how we make more space within the timetable for the student's kind of independent development. So the, our timetable, as I said, to begin with, you know, we have about 40 to 50 contact hours a week. And that is student with one of their many teachers all the time. So it's, you know, there's very little time, therefore, for them to be doing as much um, independent practice as they could possibly be doing. And I think what one of the things that we're looking at is how do we foster greater independence and greater understanding of themselves as artists, as well as, as actors, as people who can make and create work, as well as deliver, if you like, other people's work. I think that's become an absolute priority as much as anything because the world of the arts has profoundly changed and that change has been accelerated by COVID as well. In the arts, I'm sure people may well be aware that a lot of work has moved online now. There's been, theatres have been closed for a year and actors, directors, writers produced incredibly creative over that time in making use of the digital platforms that we have now to create work. So we have to really take that into account when we're training the actors, that, that the notion that up until 
really the last 12 months, but I would say it's been changing over the last five years or so. The actor as the person who tells somebody else's story and is directed to using somebody else's text. I mean, that's a kind of a, a, a very traditional kind of expectation anyway. But really now the actor is someone who has greater agency in finding their own pathways through the profession. They may be generating their own work. They may be making their own web series. They may be making their own short films. They may be kind of uh, hosting or constructing podcasts. They may be writing so, so one of the questions we're looking at is, is how do we make space and how do we incorporate in our curriculum this, um, the development of their skills as independent artists and makers of work, as well as people who can be responsive to the requirements of the more um, traditional industry? And pedagogically, how do we work with them to facilitate the, the, the growth of their individuality rather than just to guide them through a, a more monocultural process? Thanks again, Lucy. Now on to our final interview with Scott Drawer, the Director of Sport at Millfield School, an independent school in Somerset in the southwest of England. He joined Millfield in 2018, having previously worked for Team Sky the Rugby Football Union, UK Sport and the English Institute of Sport. A few weeks back, Scott was interviewed by my good colleague Matthew Stone and we produced two articles off the back of it. Those articles were both published in May. The first asked, are young people learning differently today? While the second tackles the problem of finding effective ways to coach Generation Z or Generation Z. I was keen to invite Scott onto the show and, in my first question, I asked him if the core principles of pedagogy have at all changed in recent times. Uh, it's, it's a good question. I think, um, you know, I'm relatively new to the education environment. Um, so all my experience comes from high performance sport into this context. And that gave me a platform to have to revisit the fundamental understanding about learning, particularly in like, young people. And when you read science and you read the research, you read it's an evolutionary process. So I, I don't think the first principles about what we understand about good teaching, good pedagogy, good development are moving forward that rapidly. What is changing more quickly is the environment around us. So the emergence of technology, you know, the, the impact of society and all of that is the thing that's making the big difference. So uh, we are beginning to learn and understand a lot more about how young people develop and the various approaches we can use but um but i think that's pretty robust so i think we often get clouded by things that are moving much faster around us but when you strip all of that away the reality of of really good learning really good pedagogy really good development i think is well understood and established it's about how you deliver that in your context that's the most important factor so the emergence of tech has certainly changed the approaches we can use but fundamentally the science of really good learning and really good development is pretty robust in my view so i think it's what's going on outside often clouds us and you've got to strip that circus away and really get down to what matters what are our fundamental principles about good development and you've got experience of high performance sports and now education what are some of the differences you've noted between those in this space yeah i mean that's a good question too uh, without a doubt and i've been really fortunate to be involved in you know various sports and high performance sport for, for a number of years but um i guess that's evolved rapidly in the past 20 years without a doubt so you know the emergence of lottery funding in the uk broadcasting money you know the scale of what performance sport now is has changed dramatically and in some respects education hasn't been able to keep pace or hasn't adapted quickly to change with that so uh, in milford school where i work for example sport is a 
significant part of what we provide for the development of young people. So our ability to stay connected, what what goes on in that outside world is really, really important. So where you have young people who have some natural talent and a real work ethic and desire to, to really achieve in their sport, you have to be connected to that outside world. So that's really changed the dynamic. So there's a level of professionalism, if I call it that, or I guess improved administration skills, you know, planning, all of those things that now go on in sport as well that we can learn from in education. So I, I guess that's that's the differences that we begin to see. And so it's therefore in an education environment where sport's a really big factor for why many people may come to a school like Millfield. It's just we've got to stay connected by that world and take the good stuff and use it here to give young people the best opportunity to learn and develop through their sport. And what in your view is the best way to take your knowledge as a coach or as an educator and apply it in any given context? What questions do you need to be asking yourself? Oh God, yeah, that's a, that's a good one. Um, whether whether you work in sport, whether you work in the classroom, whether you work in the music theatre or the drama theatre, I think you've got to get a really good understanding of, about learning science, if that's the way we, we talk about how people develop and how people learn. So I don't think it particularly matters about the domain. I think you've, you've just really got to understand how that works for young people. Um, and as I said, I think the thing that makes the biggest difference is how you apply it to each of those individuals in your unique context. We can learn a lot from different domains, whether you're on the sports field, whether you're in the classroom, you know, whether you're in, in the drama theatre. But I think some of those things are really, really similar and we can learn off one another. So I guess it's that that ability to really get to what matters, to understand the science of pedagogy so you know how to get the best out of young people. And in your recent interview with my colleague Matthew Stone, you cited the author Helen Pearson and her book, The Life Project, The Extraordinary Story of Our Ordinary Lives. Why did this book strike you so much? Uh, yeah, no, good question. I actually saw, uh, watched her TED. There's a, there's a really good, if anyone wants to watch it, go on to TED and, and watch her presentation, which was the stimulus for me to go back and read a lot of the science and a lot of the work. I guess what I was struggling with at the time was my, my ability, because I'd been spent so much time in sport, and particularly high performance sport, in many different sports, when I came into this environment, I, I guess what I tried to do is just hit the pause button and just take a step back to really understand about, uh, about development and take sport out of it. What really, really matters to young people? What are the things I guess the skills we need as coaches as teachers as developers to enable them to be the best they can be that work was really fascinating because it tracked you know lots of people over decades to really identify what I called the big rocks <laughs> which really enabled them to be successful later in life what were the things about parenting what were the behaviors they had at home what are all those characteristics that provided a really sound foundation for them to go on and be successful in life because I think those are important those are the most important things we have to get right regardless of what domain we're working in to enable young people to flourish so they really enjoy you know the experience they get through sport they really find their passion they get self-motivated they understand work ethic they understand all those core characteristics which will make them a success you know on top of some innate natural talent so just taking that step back and really just trying to understand what were those things that made the biggest difference was important and there's no rocket science in it unsurprisingly you know I've mentioned about brilliant parenting being a fundamental element of it you know and and so what's that's changed for us what we try to do in our school environment is there for embrace parents much more the real critical stakeholders in their child's experience through sport so there's lots of things in there that we've tried to learn from and reinforce when we support young people in their experiences at sport and millfield and, and that doesn't matter whether they're just going to go on and play it for life for fun to remain healthy or whether they want a career in sport or whether they actually are going to go on and compete at the highest levels i think those things are consistent regardless of what you do we then layer on sport and of course there's other other factors which become important but that reading the the ted video following up on some of the science papers were critical in just, I guess, helping grind me and remind me about what was important. 
And in the second piece you did here with us at Leaders, you expressed your concerns about the professionalisation of youth sport. I wonder if you could please briefly elaborate on those. Yeah, I think, um, uh, yeah, it's a good one. I guess um, we, whether it's professionalisation or commercialisation, commercialisation is probably a better word. We know sport sort of sells people. Uh, it's, I guess it's, uh, you know, it's entertainment at the highest levels of what we engage in. So I think there's some elements of that where people have tried to translate what goes on at the highest levels of sport and just assume it translates into youth sport and young people. And I think that's a big mistake. You often hear that quote that, you know, kids are not mini adults and you know, a lot of people talk about it. You know, I guess that's what's beginning to happen. There are these practices and processes which happen at the highest levels of winning you know where it is about winning fundamentally you get judged by whether you're on the podium or whether you win a world cup or a world champs or all those sorts of scenarios um, and they try to translate elements of that into youth sport and i think that's the stuff i fundamentally disagree with which is why when we go back and reflect on the work of helen pearson or the great work done in youth sport around what why did children take part in sport what are the key things that uh, enable them to continue to do that i think we've got to go back and remember what's important to them so I think that's when we talk about that professionalization, commercialization, it's, it is the belief that people just take this direct transfer from one to the other. There are good things we can learn without a doubt, but it's knowing which bits and when. There's a real skill to that. And the brilliant coaches who've worked across, you know, all levels of sport, whether it's the highest level and then in development and then at grassroots, they're able to do that. Um, and there are not many of those people that have had those opportunities to work across all those domains or have chosen the opportunity to do that, to really challenge themselves as a coach. But those who can do it are able to take stuff from grassroots and apply it to the top end because they find things that are highly relevant and vice versa. So I think we can't blankly apply things from one domain to the other. Um, really skilled coaches, really skilled teachers, are able to find the things that do matter across all of them and know when to use it. And of course, a lot of members here at the Leaders Performance Institute will work in feedback-rich environments. A lot of those skilled coaches, as you've already described. And how, in your view, does the skilled coach find the right learning moments, as I believe you call them? Oh, wow. Yeah, another good question. I guess that there's no right and wrong answer to this. I think a really good coach that's able to live in the moment, I guess it's like having your game face on, really, can identify those. And it's, um, you've got, I guess the first thing you have to do is create as many opportunities as possible, because often you don't know uh, which children are going to respond to which moments at which time, because they're all, at, you know, certainly in youth sport, the rates of development going through young people is that this is the time of life when then they're going to develop the fastest at any point. So I think it's the coach his job to create you know a diverse range of opportunities on a consistent basis to really help find those right opportunities it, it's not as simple as knowing when that occurs I think you, you create this environment where it's constant it's diverse there's so many different coaching experiences you're going to provide and it's knowing how to match those to the students that you're working with a, a lot is you know it's just that's the skill of a coach really you've got a brilliant toolbox you've got brilliant observation skills they're able to live in the moment and they, re they really know when to bring those experiences to life it can be real time it can be session to session it can be longer term but they really understand the individuals they're working with to create the right coaching experiences that enable them to get the best out of them and so you know of course you can plan for it you can have the most detailed opportunities you can but i think you know the brilliant coaches can live in that moment and know when to intervene when to say something you know when to challenge an individual depending on what's going on to help them 
feel confidence and motivation to improve because if they keep getting better that self-motivation is going to keep them coming back and finally scott how do you see the coach athlete relationship developing over the next few years what do you expect to be coming around the corner yeah good question i think i said at the start around the environment around us is changing dramatically but i think a really good coach athlete relationship is built on trust and confidence and belief really i think it's the, the job of the coach to give that young person the belief in their ability and that that hasn't changed uh, of course you know they've, they've got to create that internal motivation for them but i think when you come back to that trust and confidence that the coach has and the ability for them to give that to the individual that will never change and i think you've got to get those things right there's a few, few other elements that are the important before you start layering on all the complexities that, that can come through technology and our emergence of our knowledge around young people but you have to have that and i don't think that'll ever change it hasn't changed in the past and it won't change in the future but, you know, being able to create, as I say, that belief, trust to give them hunger, the desire to work harder will enable them to achieve the best they can do. So I think you've got to get into those elements of building that relationship to enable young people to be the best they can. 